This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Assalamu alaikum. 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 Know he's from Sudan. And I learned something about the brothers from Sudan. They never, ever put sugar in their coffee. <laughs> it's true. They put coffee in their sugar. <laughs> I, 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 just want to, I just want to say that. <laughs> they love sweets. And he's a very sweet man. Tonight, brothers and sisters, I want to do two things. Two suggestions. The first one is obvious. You must be Quran every day. Prophet said, the best of you those who are in the Quran and teach. Read the Quran every day and read the words of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and we will have a better understanding of the Quran. The Quran is relevant, it deals with issues of today. The second thing I want to recommend you must. Know the laws of the land in which you live. You must. Especially the Constitution of the United States of America. What is the difference between the Quran and the Constitution? You tell me. What is the difference? Between the Quran and the Constitution. What is the difference? Good. One is man-made, the Constitution. Our Founding fathers never claimed it to be divine. Proof of it. They have in the Constitution a provision to make changes. So, since the time of the beginning of the Constitution until now, there have been 27 amendments to the Constitution of the United States of America. We never claimed that the Union was perfect. We, the people of the United States, in order to make a more perfect union, to make it more perfect. And the greatness of our Constitution is that it can always change as good. My mother gave me some advice. She said, son, people are people. The very nature of human beings is that sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad. Our Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, said, In the Mahana Basha, I am only a human being. We're not divine, we're not angels, we're human beings. Now, I told my friends jokingly, Reverend, that if Donald Trump becomes the President of the United States of America, 
I'm getting my passport, and I'm going to a different country. Keep on the camera. I, I was like, they're joking, right? Found out that everybody's saying the same thing. <laughs> and let me give you, I can give you at least a thousand reasons. Let me give you one. In July, Donald Trump was asked, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? He hesitated a long time and said, that's a difficult question. He said, I hope that I would never do anything that I would have to ask God forgiveness. Our prophet, Reverend, said, Wallahi, inni astaghfirullah wa atubi ilayhi tibyon akkaram min sabayna maratan. He said, I ask Allah's forgiveness every day, more than 70 times a day. We're human beings. And he said that if I become president, I'm going to do this. I'm going to change everything that Obama has said. People are people, which comes to my topic today. I feel very generous today. I want to give away some money. Anyone here needs money, can use money? I am prepared right now to give a thousand dollars out of the Reverend's pocket. <laughs> For anyone who can answer this question, racism isn't the same as institutionalized racism. I would argue that the first racist was Shaitan the devil. When Allah says, Man, man, why didn't you bow down when I ordered you? He said, I'm better than Adam. You created me of fire, and him, you created of mud, of clay. I'm better. Why? Because of your, 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 uh, uh, your spirituality, your intellect. What? No, no, I'm better because of my creation. So he's the first racist. When you have a racist, it's bad. I'll give you one example. Have you ever heard of Medgar Evers? Medgar Evers was a civil rights worker. When he was a young man in high school, he used to have to walk to school 12 miles a day. And he said that when he walked to school, the children in the white children in the buses used to throw things at them, walking to school, trying to get an education. And they did it because of their racism. But that isn't a major problem. Racism, thinking yourself better than someone else based upon your color, that's a problem, but that isn't the real problem. The real problem is institutionalized racism. It's in the very institution. It's in the penal, it's in the uh, educational system, housing, everything in law, everything. It raises its ugly head. I want to give you one example. Reverend, you know that this is the 50th year anniversary of the famous Civil Rights uh, Bill of 19, Voting Rights Act of 1965. 50 years ago, the very important point. Institutionalized racism, racism? Black people, in order to vote in many places of the South, had to take a literacy, literacy test. 
So I want one person who would like to get a thousand dollars come up, and you want to, I want you to answer one of the questions that were asked of black people in the sixties. And if you get it right, Allah He will give you a thousand dollars. Anyone volunteer? Come, Jay. No, you no young come. Yeah, gonna get a thousand dollars. Well, he happy with that. Boy, and I'm gonna give you some money. Okay, I'll give it to you. I promise you, get it right. Take the mic. Answer this question and you have a thousand dollars. First one to ask you, do you want cash or a check? <laughs> Either, okay, put the mic to you. Question. How many bubbles in a bar of soap? <laughs> that was on the test. <laughs> Zero? Zero. Very good. Bye-bye. <laughs> Sorry. Anyone else volunteer? One more question. A different question. Shake, you don't need a thousand dollars? One more? Come on, man! This looks like an intelligent man. He can answer this simple question. And this one is easy, Shay, really, relatively speaking. Have you ever heard of the Constitution of the United States of America? Yes, I have. Excellent. <laughs> now recited by heart. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's institutionalized racism. In 1963, a place called Dallas, um, city, what state Dallas County, Alabama. The population of Dallas was 57% uh, African Americans. Of the 15,000 black men and women who was eligible to vote, only 130 actually was registered to vote because of all of the intimidation, etc., etc. My advice to us, we must use the law, know the law of the land, and use it to our advantage, like Martin Luther King Jr. did, like Malcolm did, etc. Two things I'm going to say, and I'm finished, I hand it over to our illustrious reverend, two things. The turning point of the Civil Rights Movement, I was there, I lived it, happened, in my opinion, March 7th, 1965. It's not often that I recommend you to watch a movie. I'm going to recommend two movies today for you to go see. The first one is called Selma. I'm sorry. If you didn't see it, you need to watch it. Very accurate, maybe a point here and there is not 100% accurate, but very, very accurate. The famous march from Selma, Alabama to the capital, Montgomery. In March 7, 600 people set out to march from Selma to Montgomery. But the police stopped them as on a Sunday and beat them 
It's called Bloody Sunday. And what they didn't know is that while the police were beating these unarmed protesters, Mark, uh, Jeff Kennedy said, those who will make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. And the beautiful thing about our religion, our, 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 our nation, we have the right to protest. What happened is that night at 9 o'clock, there was a movie being shown called The Judgment at Nuremberg. 48 million Americans are watching and they interrupted that program to show the protests that had taken place and all those black people that were brutalized by the police. And the nation saw it and they were outraged. And everybody began to talk about it and say that this can't be done. Two days later, March 9th, was another march. And not only were black people there, but white people there, reverends and rabbis, Jewish rabbis were there. And it had grown from 600 people to 2,500 people. And they got together and they began the march from Selma to Montgomery. But what happened is that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the uh, organizers stopped and turned around. It's called Turnaround Tuesday. And the reason that they turned around is because they didn't have, they didn't have the legal right to proceed, right? Seven, the ninth. After the judge, the federal judge gave them, lifted the injunction, gave them a right to march. When they marched this time, when they got to Montgomery, Alabama, they were 25,000 people. And in that year, President Johnson signed the famous Civil Rights, uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. It changed everything. This is my advice, I'm going to give you one example. What about Muslims? Look what we face. Islamophobia, look at that, what they do to us. I'm saying, learn from African Americans. Whatever we do, must, must, must be nonviolent. The only way that we will succeed in this country is that must be nonviolent. Now I'm going to close. Uh, I know there's a couple of lawyers here. I, I saw some of them in my whole session. How many lawyers do we have? I need someone here. Just tell me, you don't need word for word, but just tell me, make us understand the First Amendment. Can anyone do that? Can someone tell me about the First Amendment? So uh, the First Amendment was actually um, had a five freedoms that the people thought that um, that they wouldn't be able to have unless they would they would they, because they wanted a bill of rights that uh, that they really needed until they thought that nobody would screw them over. Number one, number one, uh, freedom of religion. Good. You have the freedom of religion. You can practice your faith. You don't have to hide. You have the right to practice your faith. Number one, number two. Freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. You can talk about your religion. No one can stop you from practicing and talking about your faith. Number three. Freedom of assembly. 
Read them all. Assembly. Assembly. Yeah, hold that one. Hold that one next. Oh, this one's freedom of addition. Hold that one up. Freedom of press. You have the right to publicize whatever you want. You have the right. You can write a book about Islam. You have the right. You can write a newspaper. You have that right. You are a Muslim, you are an American, and you have that right. Don't you ever give it up. That's your right. You got even right. Now, last one. Assembly. 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 Is addition? No, that's the one. Assembly. Assembly. You can protest. You have the right to do that. Um, Abdullah um, Mujahid mentioned yesterday about 60 million refugees. But what he didn't say is that 70% of the refugees of the world are Muslims. We have here the right to assemble. And the last one, he's going to tell us the last one. Go ahead. Petition. <laughs> All right. Okay, that's it. So you're allowed to um, basically, you're allowed to petition, you're allowed, you're allowed to have a. <laughs> Thank you, you're one for that. Thank you so much. And even the last one. We have the right to petition our government for redress of grievances. I'm going to give you one case. You have to know the Constitution. You have to know the land, uh, the, the law of the land. I'm going to give you one example that I close. In a place called Bridgewater, New Jersey, not far from my home, New York City. That area has 17 churches, a Catholic convent, a Jewish synagogue, two Hindu temples, and a Sikh temple, but not one masjid. So the Muslims in that area decided that they wanted to build a masjid. And there was some property on 10 acres of land that they wanted to use for a masjid. So, in that area, you could build religious houses of worship. And they went to the city council to apply. The city council changed the law. The people said, we don't want Muslims here. Sounds like we don't want black people here. It's the same thing. And the city council came in and changed the law. What did the Muslims do? They petitioned the government, the federal government. And guess what? It was a settlement. So they said, okay. We don't want you to have this land. The Muslims said, okay. So they gave them a better land, 15 acres. And then they won some money. You know how much money? 
We want seven million seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The right to petition the government. You have that right? Those African Americans, they paid the price. We should learn from them, boss. By the way, I was discriminated against because I was black, and now I'm discriminated because I'm Muslim. So I have a double whammy. But that's all right. I don't do that. That's all I'm here for. I'd like to pick up where he left off. Um, the Voting Rights Act is under attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is a malicious attempt by the right in our country to pull back the Voting Rights Act, to pull back all of the gains of the Civil Rights Movement. So it's incumbent upon us not only to know that history, but to recognize that with social justice, with any progress, every step forward is accompanied by a step backwards. And so it's going to be upon us in going forth from this convention to make sure that the Voting Rights Act doesn't get fully stripped in Michigan and across the country. Um, I'd like to start myself talking a little bit more about my own personal story because I want you to know how I kind to have this be such a passion for myself. The kind of work that I do um, in trying to battle racism and trying to now work with the Muslim community against Islamophobia. Um, I was born in the city of Detroit. I had two uncles who were both Detroit City firemen. Unfortunately, um, my father passed away when I was just two years old. I'm the youngest of five. And in Detroit, what happened in the city of Detroit in 1967? Anybody know what happened in the city of Detroit? The riots. The riots. Okay. So the I was born in 1966. So as I'm growing up with two firemen uncles. We would spend time around the holiday, we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving, and there would be family discussions. And they would look at my mother, who is now a widow with five children, and say, Gail, that's my mother's name, Gail, you need to get those kids out of the city of Detroit. No explanation other than the fear of someone looking different. On my block, there was a house being built next to us. I moved out of Detroit when I was six years old. So that the house that was going up next to us um, was being built, and it was a fine house, it was a beautiful house, but the suspicion was a black family was gonna be moving into that house. So the trumpet started to get blown a little hard to get out. And we were forced, basically by fear, to move out. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, had a wonderful home in the country, a very sedate, but incredibly racist community. And as I grew up there, we had to deal with the situation of a friend of mine in the seventh grade, he moves up to the area from Indiana, his father's a minister, 
and he's got two adopted children. And one of the uh, adopted children is a, a young man about uh, seven years old. He happens to be black. The sister was six. She happened to be black. In a community that did not welcome and accept people of color. When we are, I went to um, the Detroit Zoo as on a field trip, as often kids will do, you get in a bus, you go on a field trip. The, the, the city of Detroit's zoo isn't in the city of Detroit, it's in Royal Oak. But as you're there, there was a bus of African American children. And all of my classmates were looking at the children from that other bus and was talking down to them simply because of their color. So one episode after the other, part of my kind of upbringing of why this is incredibly wrong. And so for me to see the same kind of stuff happen to Muslims, to anybody that's different in any way, is an unbelievable affront to my values and my conscience. Because you need to recognize that race is a construct. It's a social construct to keep control over a person. You didn't mention, what, how were slaves counted in three-fifths? African-Americans were counted as three-fifths of a human being in the beginning. Three-fifths. All the way through history, African-Americans have been dehumanized. See, when you treat somebody as if they're different than you because of whatever, color, anything that you choose, part of what you do when you treat someone different is you all of a sudden make them other. And if you're in power and they have less power, then you're dehumanizing. They're making them somewhat less than human. You're making them three-fifths of a human being. Unconsciously, right? How does our media portray Muslims today? As what? Terrorists. Terrorists. Huh. What about Hollywood? What does it do to Arabs? Pardon? Villains, right? Villains, heroes, everything else, right? Dehumanizing people to keep them under. Now that we have all of this takes place to make us the new boogeyman. Right? You know what I mean by boogeyman? What's the boogeyman? Anybody? What's a boogeyman? What's the boogeyman? The boogeyman is what you scare, what you're afraid of, what's underneath your bed when you're a kid. When you turn off the lights and you're afraid of the dark, you're afraid of the boogeyman because you don't know who that is. That's what our country is continuing to do with Muslims. You are, in our narrative, the new boogeyman. We came out of a world construct where the Cold War, which basically legitimized how we did everything that we did in the world in terms of foreign policy. We could shift our alliances because we're against the evil empire, which was the Soviet Union. That's how we did all of our decisions to keep the engine of our army going. We've done, we've replaced communism 
with Islamophobia. Post 9-11, everything that happens in the world tends to pit. Look what happens, what do we have coming up as a national election in 2016? Pay attention to what happens as we get closer to that election. Do you think the, what do they call that, uh, Homeland Security with the colors? Yeah. The colors will go up, right? Because what happened with post 9-11? We as a people, all of us, started giving up our rights, right? Muslims lost all their rights that they had, because you didn't really have rights. But in terms of what was going on, in Guantanamo and other places like that, you could be held without any cause, just some suspicion. Now we have terrorist lists, right? Mm -hmm. But half of Dearborn was on the terrorist list, wasn't it? Something like that? That's what our country has done when you dehumanize another person, when you make them less. And that's what the institutional racism, they gave the examples about what the voting are all about, is that all of a sudden, the fear of other, of that other person, justifies that they're somehow less than human, and that allows the ethos, the values, the programs, the policies, everything that happens around the way the world works is constructed by those images, and it affects everything. So if, bring this right to the present. In Macomb County, guess how, who knows where Macomb County is in the room, so I can give a little, okay, some of you. If you drive northeast from where we're at at Coble Hall and you cross 8 Mile, you're in Macomb County. There's 875,000 residents in Macomb, so it's bigger than, I think, eight or nine states in, in the country. How many languages do you think are spoken in Macomb County? In the schools? Yeah, anybody? 30? Eight? Keep going up. 10, no, you have to look above 30. Keep going. 50, keep going. How many? 100. 100 languages are spoken in our school district right now. That means there's a lot of people that don't look like me, right? So I'm asked to be on a panel for the school district for the Macomb County. It's called the Intermediate School District. It deals with all of the special education programs for the county, but it also is a resource for every school district in the county. There's 21 school districts. So all of their curriculum, all of what they do, kind of filters through the MISD, is what they call it. So they put together an advisory committee to do a strategic plan. There's a hundred languages spoken there's, in Sterling Heights alone, one out of four people there is born from a different homeland, foreign born, one out of four. And I looked around the room at this advisory committee. Guess what I saw? Anybody have an idea? White? Very white. There was one African-American sister there. She was stabbed. <laughs> and there was one Chaldean sister. That was it. Out of the entire group of people. And they're doing a strategic plan. That's institutional racism. How can you address the gap that's in, in there that's basically because of racism between black and white and test and everything else? 
if you don't have anybody at the table who's setting the plan for how you're going to go about doing education for the next 10 years. That's what it's all about. And so, to echo what uh, the Imam said, you have to know your history. You have to know that the plight of African Americans is tied with your plight as Muslims. Absolutely. But it's bigger than that. It's not just blacks and Muslims. Dr. King said, an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. Which means, when that sick temple is vandalized, you need to show up. When those kids are mistreated because they're Hispanic, you need to show up. When some bozo like Donald Trump gets on the television and says you're an illegal alien, no human being's illegal. You're a human being. Right? We have to bond together as one. And the only way we can do that is if someone's problem becomes our problem. And then it's incumbent upon you to reach out to partners like myself and others in hopes that together we can find voice to petition the government for everybody. So I'm late.